Good morning, everybody. So I'm curious. There's this idea that I've heard about recently. I'm wondering how many of you, if anybody, has heard talk about this idea of margin, leaving margin in your life. Anybody? A couple people, yeah. So it's become kind of a trendy word, especially in... um, sort of contemporary Christian religious circles, lifestyle bloggers that overlap with that universe, this idea of leaving margin in your life. It's a helpful idea, I think. It's a corrective idea, a corrective to what I think is maybe a more common idea in our culture, that we always have to do our best, that we always have to push it to the limits that we can't leave room for error, right? That we have to be maxed out all the time. It's a very American idea, right? Give 110%. And it can show up sometimes in us thinking that if we're not at our best, it's not even worth it to show up. I see that happen sometimes with friends who say, oh, I don't want to go out tonight. I'm not really feeling super, you know, interesting. Nothing going on in my life. My hair's not right. I don't like my shoes today, you know, little things. People who don't want to go to a meeting, don't want to show up for church maybe, right? Because they're kind of off. And sometimes it's not about their internal experience. It's about how they think other people will perceive them, how we think other people will react if we're not showing up at our best. Well, the idea of leaving margin is to intentionally not give things your all to intentionally hold back from 100%. Now, this might sound sort of like an unmotivational speech, right? (laughs) The author of one of the first books about this idea, a guy named Dr. Richard Swenson, he says it's rare, this is unusual, to see a life, for example, that's pre-scheduled to only 80% or 75%. But that is what the idea of leaving margin is all about. It's about pre-scheduling and planning your life to a space that holds something back, that holds something in reserve for contingencies or for unanticipated situations. This idea maybe sounds more familiar to you in a different kind of context. The word margin, the idea that you hold something in reserve for a contingency. Where have we heard those kinds of words before? Financial? Yeah, budgets, money. How many of you know who this woman is? Susie, Susie Orman. I watched a lot of the Susie Orman show in my 20s, CNBC. It was one of my favorite shows, actually, because people would open up about their financial lives, which is so unusual, right? I learned a lot. She taught me a lot about financial literacy. And I remember one of her big tips, one of the things she liked to correct was that she said, most people will tell you, you need to have three to six months of your living expenses in a cash reserve, an emergency fund. She said, that's not enough. You need to have at least eight months of living expenses in an emergency fund. I'm about eight months behind on that. I don't know about you all. And it's not that it's not good advice, right? It is sound advice for living, but sometimes advice like that makes us end up feeling kind of awful, like we are not measuring up. For many of us, right, the only margin we see is the margin between where the advice says we should be and where we actually are. Earlier this year, there was a financial news site, Market Watch, 
They published an article that said that by the age of 35, you should have twice your salary saved, according to experts. Yeah. That first reply here on Twitter just asks, do any of you know real people? It's something that that industry of financial advisors is actually kind of scrambling to deal with right now. There's a big distance these days between where the experts say people should be and the reality of our lives, especially generationally. A lot has changed from what the age-old advice used to tell us. It's true for Gen Xers to some extent, but especially for people in my generation, millennials. If you were born after 1980, like I was, You came of age in kind of a perfect storm time to hit all of these different factors working against you. The huge rise in the cost of education after high school, the huge rocketing fast student debt that students were asked to take on, and then job hunting for the first time usually during the recession of the mid-2000s. A few readers of this article by MarketWatch also took to Twitter. And they offered a few responses that seemed to them maybe a little more realistic, like this one. By age 35, you should have a huge box of cables you can't throw out because you're pretty sure you still need a couple of them, but you're not sure which ones. Check. Yes. Right. We're on it. Or this one. By age 35, you should have a list of documentaries you tell people you want to watch, but you don't watch them because you kind of never feel like you're in the right mood. Mm -hmm. We're there. Or this one. By age 35, you should realize that no one has the faintest clue what they're doing and that desperately bluffing it is a permanent feature of the human condition. Yeah, I think I hit that one when I was 30, so I was ahead of the game. Yeah. So for a lot of us... Right? Building that kind of savings isn't easy. And for most of us, leaving a margin in our lives, in our time, also is not easy. We have bills to pay, yes. We have kids to raise, some of us. Parents to care for, some of us. Jobs to keep. Responsibilities on our shoulders. The practical realities of our lives get in the way of this idea of leaving a margin. And we can know up here in our heads that leaving room in our lives is a wise choice. That leaving room in our lives helps us stay grounded and calm. That it opens up space to receive unexpected gifts of joy and ease and connection. All of those things that we know actually are what make life worth living. But it's hard because day to day, leaving room would involve risking things that matter. It would involve risking our sense of security, our sense of esteem, our sense of control over the few things that we can control. Margin in our lives isn't just about scheduling a spa day in our free time. We might not feel like we have any free time. We might feel like we have to give up something we really value to even have that space. It would mean relinquishing and releasing something that really matters to us and to the people around us. That's not always an easy choice. 
Unfortunately, I think one thing that we do learn over time that I have learned from people who have lived this life longer than I have is that the alternative to leaving up that leaving that space open ends up being a lot harder on us. Without leaving open a space for the unexpected, acknowledging our limits, being less than great, less than on all the time, we forget where that limit is. And it becomes easy to live our lives at 100% and then 120% and then 160%. We only have 100. So that means we are just borrowing against the future. You can read the studies. We die sooner from the effects of long-term stress on our bodies. We miss times with loved ones, like Josie was talking about, times that can't be replaced when they're gone. We overextend until it hurts. And one day we realize that that pain has become our new normal. And of course, the scariest thing is that most of the world rises up to meet us right there, offering painkillers, offering promotions sometimes, rewarding the ways that we damage ourselves, encouraging us to offer more and more and more. The title of this message series that Reverend Ken and I and Kathleen Higgins, our lay preacher, have offered this fall. I think Ken came up with the title. I can't remember. He's not looking at me. Yep, he did. Um, Comfort and Joy. And I remember when he said it, I said, oh, yeah, that's good. That's perfect for the holidays. That's from some Christmas thing, right? You see it sold on rustic art at Home Goods, right? It's part of it's part of the culture. Who actually remembers what Christmas carol this is from? Comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. God rest rest you, Mary. (laughs) Yep, that's the exact same thing I did when I first heard it. God rest ye. God rest ye, Mary gentlemen. It's actually one of the oldest surviving carols that we still sing. It dates back to the 15th century, the 1400s. And so it's got some of that old school language in it, right? What's a tiding, really, when you think about it? It kind of sounds like one of those celebratory Christmas words, like it's just a good thing, right? Tiding actually just means news. It means information. A tiding is the old school version of a CNN alert on your smartphone. It's not a hope or a prayer or a rejoicing necessarily. It's just a statement of what is happening. And in this Christmas season, the way that it can be today for us, how interesting that the oldest surviving carol we sing is the one that is encouraging us to rest. The one that explains the meaning of this season, at least for believers in that Christian story, as The simple fact that the news is here, the news of God, love, the highest power that we can imagine, that it's here, and we can rest in that. It's an ocean that we can float in, and it's just news. We don't have to do anything for it. We don't have to strive or work towards it. We don't sing 
Um, oh, schedule some time in for self-care. Time for self-care, right? <laughs> it's just tidings. It's news of comfort and joy. And it's here if we can trust something that's a little mysterious, right? If we can have faith that leaving behind our flocks and our kingdoms, our work, our worries, and just following the stars for a little while might lead to something beautiful and newly born and precious, something that will feed our hearts. The carol tells us that leaving space for that mystery, letting go a little bit, opening up our hands to release and to rest, that that can bring us comfort and joy. And it's risky, just like leaving room in other ways, because we know that flocks do need tending, And we know that kingdoms do need managing and work needs doing and worries are real. Leaving room sometimes feels like we're leaving beloved things and people hanging. But being in community when we do this, remembering that we are not alone, that we are together with fellow seekers fellow imperfect travelers on that road. It's a very helpful reminder then that not all of this rests on our shoulders. We individually are not the only doers of things. We all have gifts and skills to share. And sometimes maybe we can see through this story that the absolute best thing to do might be receiving that with grace, with open hands, leaving that space for someone else to tend, saying, that is just not mine to do. A few years ago, I visited one of my really good friends who moved away maybe five years ago now. She moved to San Francisco. And I was so excited because I found out that just the same week that I was visiting, this place was opening up outside of San Francisco terrain. Any of you ever been to the one in Glen Mills? If you've never been to Terrain, it is a very expensive, insanely beautiful home and garden store. And it also has a cafe in it that is slightly more affordable that serves delicious farm-to-table food. I go to Terrain sometimes, especially in the winter, just to breathe and take pictures and maybe buy an $18 candle. (laughs) And so I got excited hearing that this place had now opened in Palo Alto, maybe a 40-minute drive away from where my friend lived. And so we drove out there. We decided to get lunch. And when we arrived, we noticed from the signs on the doors that this was actually the cafe's opening week. And so we came in. We were seated by our hostess. Normal stuff, right? She handed us our menus. And she said someone would be over soon to take our drink order. And then another staff person came to our table who also had a stack of menus under his arm. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, I I see you already have menus. Um, Well, are you ready to order your drinks? And we were. We ordered our coffee and our orange juice, and he walked away, and we kept looking at the food. And maybe 90 seconds later, another server, a, a third person now, mind you, in probably less than five minutes, 
came over to our table and said, hi there, welcome to Terrain. Are you ready to order your drinks? We said, oh, we, we already ordered our drinks with, um, with that guy over there. And she said, oh, well then, that's fine. If you're ready, I can take your order for lunch. So we told her what we wanted to eat, and we handed her our stack of menus, and she walked away. And I kid you not, maybe two minutes later, a fourth server, a new person walked over with a stack of menus and started handing them out to us and said, I'm sorry about the wait. Welcome to terrain. Can I take your drink order? It was the worst service I've ever experienced. But for such a bizarre reason, right? No one was rude. No one was slow. It actually became clear to us, right, that somewhere in the training for the restaurant's opening, all of the wait staff had been given the same instructions. If you see something that needs doing, you do it, right? You take care of it. You don't wait for somebody else. You get in there. You see a customer with a need and you fill it. Such well-intentioned advice. But it was a freaking mess. <laughs> and everyone was frustrated by it, right? No one knew their limits. No one knew their boundaries of where their role ended and another role started. And so nobody could trust each other to fill in those gaps, to fill in the gaps around the margin, around each of their efforts. And it also just didn't work at the end of the day. Our table didn't know who its person was, and the people on the staff didn't know which tables had actually been taken care of. So everybody ended up pissed off and actually less well cared for. I think in our country and in our world today, sometimes we are all a little bit like the wait staff at the Palo Alto terrain. We see all of these gaps. We see pain and suffering up close in ways that we are not even used to. We know that not everyone is well cared for by the systems that are here, and so it becomes hard to trust that leaving a margin won't sink us, won't hurt us. Without better systems for working together, it becomes nearly impossible for us to trust that certain things are not ours to do because we don't know whose they are. And so we feel like maybe we have to leave no margin for error. We feel insecure. We feel scared. And we feel like maybe there's no space to leave room. And we do have to build those better systems. Not just because the alternative is stressing us out as a culture, which it is, but because for so many it is literally killing us. And yet that doesn't mean that every piece of that work is ours alone. It doesn't mean that we have to take everything that we see that's wrong onto our shoulders. Because these human bodies were just not built for that. The Christmas story, the one that we hear every single year as the days get darker and shorter, the Christmas story is a story that reminds us of what we were built for for news of comfort, for joy, for rest, seeking and searching and connecting with each other. And I think the Christmas story also shows us something even more important for finding hope in times like these. 
It shows us that good news can show up even when there is no room. That a baby can be born when there is no room at the inn. A room at the inn would be nice, right? But even for a wandering family in a manure-soaked stable, an unmarried mother in an occupied land, a huge gift can still be born. Things don't have to look right. We don't have to have our act together for a gift to make room for itself. You know, part of the reason this idea of margin has become so popular in Christian devotional life is because it's a way of making space for things outside of our plans, right? Making space for the things in that story that God is sending our way. And yet the Christmas story reminds us that even if we can't find a way to make margin in our overpacked lives, maybe we can see that even just our gaps, the places where we feel like we're coming apart, that that is a kind of space. That that is also a way of allowing there to be room. My friend Rachel told me a story a little while ago that I'll close with today. A story about a bike company. Now, Rachel is big into bikes. She's like a huge gearhead. She fixes bikes. She builds bikes. I haven't ridden a bike since I was 11. I don't really know much about the industry, but she does. And she says, this company, Rivendell Bike Works, they're like the Apple computers of the bicycle world. They're innovative. They're high quality. They are not cheap, but they are very respected for being well-made and long-lasting. Rivendell's owner is sort of an unconventional guy. He's kind of a more of a gearhead himself, he admits, than a businessman. On the bio of his company's website, here are some of the things it says about him. Disorganized, well-intentioned, clean, but personally on the disheveled side of things. Good for general and technical questions, but tends to let things related to follow-up slip through the cracks. Tries hard but tends to give confusing and complicated, overly detailed answers to simple questions. This is his professional bio. (laughs) There's some good stuff in there too, but that's an unusual chunk of honesty, I would say. Well, earlier this year, some of those gaps in their business strategy as a company started to catch up with them. They had basically been making things faster than they were taking orders. And so too much of the company's money was tied up in products that were sitting on the shelf, unsold, instead of in cash in the bank. And in February of this year, they realized they weren't going to make payroll. They literally didn't have enough money in the bank to pay their staff that month. A lot of companies in this situation scramble. They might go to friends, family, investors, and beg for a loan for a line of credit, Maybe the few highest paid people take a hit so that the rest of the staff can get paid that month, but that's always just a temporary solution. So instead, they did something very unusual. They sent an email out to their entire mailing list, their individual customers, their retail local bike shops, and sheepishly, but very plainly and honestly, They just explained what had happened. They said nothing nefarious or unethical was behind it, but they'd made some poor decisions. They had mismanaged 
the business's assets. I don't think there's a class in business school that tells you to do this, right? If you're in trouble, write to all your investors, all your buyers, all your customers, and tell them you're really bad at a core aspect of keeping your business going. And worse, not just that you, the owner, that guy, Greg Peterson, is bad at it, but that no one else on the team had their eye on this. I don't think you're going to find that in the seven habits of highly effective people. But that's what they did. They didn't try to paper over their gap or fill it in with frantic energy or dig their hole even deeper by asking other people to overextend themselves, to give them a temporary fix. They open that wound up down to the ground of it. And they said, we have learned something from this. We realize we need to shift our strategy and not tie up so much of our money in products. So if we make it out of this alive, that's what we're going to do. But at the bottom of this long confession, they just asked for help. They said, now that you know what we're facing, hey, local bike shops, if you've been thinking about increasing your orders on any products, this would be a great time. Customers, if you've had something on your wish list for a while and you can treat yourself this month, that will help us out. This is one post that a local bike shop ended up putting up on their Instagram account. One of hundreds. Those local bike shops put up pictures of Rivendell parts and made requests to their customers. This one says... Rivendell loves to be brutally honest, and right now they're having a hard time with cash flow. And we don't want to see our newest brand at the shop go under, especially one that we love that's so unique. And they linked to the Rivendell online shop, and they said, go buy something there. Don't worry, there's tons of stuff on their site that we don't carry here in the the store, so you can buy from them directly this time. We'll be okay. With all of those hundreds of requests that local bike shops put up all around the country, sending out messages to their own email lists, in just four days, $215,000 of new revenue came in. It was enough for them to make payroll. It was actually enough for them to pay off some debts, to move forward from a more solid place. And today, 10 months later, Rivendell Bike Works is still open. Sometimes the margin we leave is intentional. And sometimes it feels like a chasm is opening up in our lives. Sometimes it's more like the room is a manure-soaked barn. It's still room. And it's still space. And it won't always work out like a fairy tale. And yet, sometimes it does. Maybe we can remember in those moments that these kinds of stories, stories of help and new life, stories of salvation, have happened long ago in the history of time and also just this year. And so maybe this can remind us of another reason to simply be kind to ourselves with the gaps that we see where we are letting things fall through the cracks. May we be able to see that those gaps in our lives are also space. And may we remember that it is in those spaces, at least some of the time, 
where we receive tidings of comfort and joy. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Will you pray with me? God of gifts unexpected. Force in this world that brings things we never thought could be coming. Spirit of time that moves on. That sometimes catches us up short and reminds us that it won't always be like this. That these moments we have are precious that whether we feel great about them or not, this moment is our life. May we move forward from that place of appreciation and gratitude for knowing that even when things aren't perfect and don't look great, that we are worthy. We are worthy of the imperfect moments. We are worthy of each other's gaps and mistakes and that together maybe we can fill in some of those missing pieces when we share and open for these prayers I've spoken out loud and for the prayers that each one of these people carries on their hearts this morning we say amen